So, want to now kind of just take a deeper dive and looking at the sermon in its role in the Christian's moral life. So, as I've said it before, and I kind of rehash it here, if you ask most Catholics or Christians, what is the central biblical moral text for your life, many will say the Ten Commandments. And it's important. And Ratzinger talks a lot about its importance because of the need to appeal to reason. And it's the Ten Commandments that most people examine their conscience by. But in light of the tradition, in light of the sources, and I think sort of in light of reason, if Christ is the new Moses who came to fulfill the old law and the Sermon on the Mount is the text of the new law, then it's going to be the Sermon on the Mount. This is a central point for Father Pinkairs and his book. And so he notices how important the, the sermon is um, in the writings of the fathers, particularly Augustine. But he will go through the history and noticing how for many centuries, though, the Ten Commandments were seen as the central text and the Sermon on the Mount was sort of relegated to the side as a spiritual exhortation. But it really is Augustine who said that it is the charter for the Christian life. It's the summary of the path leading to the kingdom of God. It's the central moral text for Christians. And, and, and really, again, Pinkers' desire to go back to the sources of Christian ethics that call for Vatican II so by going back to the sources, so you're going back to Scripture. And so just as I said, well, how do we go back to Scripture adequately? We'll talk about John Paul II's way of looking at Genesis and whatnot. Well, Pinkers is giving that other answer. What specific Scripture are we going back to? Let's go to the sermon. We're going to really have that renewal according to Scripture. It's the Sermon of the Mount. And so he latches on to... Augustine's commentary on the sermon. Now, I'm not an Augustine scholar, but I want to make a few points here that are going to become important a, a little bit later in this discussion. So, of course, Augustine, I mean, she's still continues as this great saint and intellect and rhetorician, preacher, to have an influence on the church. Augustine lived from 354 to 430. I don't know, maybe some scholars will disagree with that, but lived a nice long life. Pinkers notices that his commentary on the sermon was his first pastoral work as a priest. So he was ordained in the year 391 at the year 37. He was 37 years old. So there's a little, it's a later vocation. Later vocation. 
And he says that he went to his bishop and said, hey, bishop, I'll give you a few months to start praying and reflecting on things before I start preaching. Which would be, go, don't, don't ask your bishop for that once you get ordained. Hey, bishop, can I have a few months off to just pray and stuff? His bishop let him do it. And it was during this time that he wrote this commentary. And the first few, again, I read different things the first few months or the first few years of his priesthood. It came at the very beginning. Now, do you know what year he was made bishop? 395. So what does that mean? what, 40, 41? Go look, this is totally off site, go look at all the church fathers and see when they were made bishops. See when they were made bishops. Just, just go do it yourself. Different world. So we're going to come back to this. We're going to come back to this. And so he, so basically... He lived, he wrote in 391, he had 40 years left, more or less, of his life after he was uh, ordained. So basically, he wrote his thing, and then he had about 35, 40 years to go. Pinkers talks about looking at the sermon, or Augustine's commentary in the sermon. I, I read most of the commentary back when I was in seminary, it's been a long time. Basically, there are five theological insights that are present in the sermon. The first and the most important one is that he calls it that charter for Christian living. You want to learn how to be a disciple of Jesus? You want to live like he lived? Here's your charter. Here's what you do. And particularly, you can see there the importance of number seven. He loves to divide everything into sevens. So the Sermon of the Mount is the Charter for Christian Life. Number two, he talks about how the Sermon of the Seven Stages of the Christian Life. He kind of like reads it progressively and even divides it as we see it in light of the Beatitudes. So basically, the, the seven, there are seven stages of the Christian life. And he, he, he sees seven Beatitudes instead of eight. And number three, he interprets the sermon in light of the Beatitudes. So basically, if the, sermon, if the Beatitudes are that condensation of the sermon, they are the seven sages. First you start with poor in spirit, and then you get to the blessedness for being persecuted. And so he'll take the whole sermon and kind of divide it under, in seven parts under the seven Beatitudes. But Augustine can't give up the number seven. He says, what other things can we divide the sermon according to? What else are there seven of? There are seven gifts of the Spirit. Let's tie it into that. So he interprets it within the context of the Holy Spirit. This is what happens when you get a few months off when you're first ordained. Your brain starts thinking about all these things. The Holy Spirit, the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. Which, of course, is important because it's going to show the role of the Spirit in living the Beatitudes, which we're going to come to, in living the sermon, as opposed to the law, because the Spirit is the new law. 
And then finally, hey, we got seven Beatitudes. We got seven gifts of the Spirit. We got seven petitions of the Our Father. Let's interpret it in relation to the Our Father, which, of course, I think is kind of cool, too, because it's like filial. Hey, it's the Son. We're living it out. And so I do, I encourage you to, 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 to read the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, in the commentary in the sermon. Of course, there are other commentaries and whatnot, but what Pinkers will notice is that, or note, that this commentary had major impact on the development of moral theology in the patristic era. Now, he doesn't get into a lot of details, maybe in other writings that I haven't read he does, but he does mention that it influenced Aquinas because of the importance that Augustine put on the Beatitudes and on happiness, well, then it helps him understand, hey, what's the real purpose of the moral life? Aquinas, not just from Aristotle, but from Augustine too. But as you might imagine, as time goes on and nominalism and the manuals take over, well, then... The influence of the commentary on the sermon and the sermon itself was lost. And so for the pink airs, in this desire to renew according to the sources, we want to go back to the sermon. This is part of the renewal of bringing scripture into the moral life. He'll say it is the perfect model for Christian living. This is what it, it should be the primary text. That's what it means to follow, be a disciple. A moral catechesis that focuses on happiness, and of course... Catechism serves that. That incorporates the Beatitudes of the seven stages. That correlates it to the gifts. And then the Lord's Prayer is that need for prayer. You can't just live a moral life without prayer, without contact with the Father. So basically, Pink Hair is here as a Thomist. Takes up a very Augustinian view of the sermon and says we can use this as a way to begin renewing moral theology. He doesn't say exactly how to do it. He kind of points us in a certain direction. Yes? Yeah, out of curiosity, this is a bit of an aside, but you mentioned earlier uh, the fruitfulness of approaching, approaching moral theology uh, from this perspective, particularly with high schoolers, etc. Are there any, I don't know if you've reviewed and looked into many of the different like, catechism programs of the church, any different institutes have available, one that does this? Yeah, I don't know, because I think right now most of the catechetical programs or books have to go through the USCCB, and they have to be fashioned according to the catechism, which does refer to the Beatitudes, but it's going to be more focused on commandments and, and things like that. Um, what I, I, I'm not saying I, I love whatever the USCCB says and all the guidelines, but I can like to do my own thing, so I'll supplement it with stuff. Um, but right now, uh, in the past several years, the book that I think is the best has been Philip Felix's book, 
And I also, I mean, I just, again, sorry, y'all. This is what you probably figured out. I don't love textbooks. I think we should draw from a lot of different sources to get different ideas. That's why I drive y'all crazy with Google Classroom. Um, but no, not that I'm aware of. Which Father Jack It's the Eight Doors of the Kingdom of Heaven, I think. Is that what's called? Eight Doors of the Kingdom of Heaven. It's great stuff. Of course, Father Jack Philippe's the best. So... We're, we're going to, so the call to go back to the sermon, I think, is him being very specific and responding to the call of Vatican II. And that's what the, 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 the gift of this is. When we talked about, well, Vatican II says, let's go back to the sources. Great. Well, there's the Bible. We've seen how it, Ratzinger talked about how it didn't work out at first because it didn't seem to have any teeth. You know, we needed to be able to address these contemporary problems. John Paul II, I think, did a good job in Theology of the Body. And now he's saying, well, look, if we're going to go back to Scripture, what specific text? Let's go back to the Sermon on the Mount. There's a tradition of this. Now, how do we put it into practice? Do we make textbooks? How do we preach it? That's, again, it's going to be left to sort of that creative response and, and the movement of the Spirit. Because part of that creative response is, what is the Spirit saying? You know, if you want to go back to the, the dialogue... The, the spirit flows where it wants. The spirit doesn't follow a script. So no matter when we talk about <clears throat> the new law, if you incorporate the spirit, the spirit is going to guide and lead you where it wants to go. And sometimes the answer that you might get will be a little surprising. Um, and, and so I think it's going to be through pastoral practice, through prayer, that we figure out how to best incorporate this. But here's the burning question. I like it. Like we're, 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 we're drilling down now. All right. Let's say that we've agreed. We want to go back to the Sermon on the Mount. We're all excited. We, we do see, though, okay, it's not as practical as the Ten Commandments, but it is the charter for Christian living. What do you think, and Pickers talks about this, what is going to be the big concern or what is the burning question in people's minds if I say, hey, y'all, the, the Sermon on the Mount is the, the decisive text, and they go and read it, and they come back to you, what do you think they're going to say? This is too hard to do. Yeah, what are you talking about? This is way too hard. I, I'm going to say the Ten Commandments. Jesus wants this total transformation of my heart. He wants me to be nice to the jerk next door. He wants me to he wants me to give alms. He wants me to give more, more than $1 in the collection on the weekend. I can't do that. Impossible. He wants me to trust God. So, so it's so lofty. It seems to be impossible. And so Pickers addresses this. How is it, if that's the case, and I think we'd agree, I mean, it's how do you live this out? How can it then be the central, so central to the renewal of moral theology? And so there have been many answers proposed to this question over the years in an effort to answer it. And so Pink Airs will look at several of them. The first one is this. We're going to look at basically three and then a fourth, which is going to land on. Basically, the Ten Commandments are for everyone, while the Sermon on the Mount is meant for the select few, the elite, the, the saints. 
So basically, they end up being counsels rather than commands. How would you respond to that? What would be the counter-argument? Seems logical. If it's too lofty, people are just going to give up on it. Well, how would you respond to this this idea, this 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 potential solution? Here, I have a little uh, disputatio. Well, so and so says that it's only for priests and religious. It's supposed to look at councils. How would you refute that? What would be your said contra? Ek. Okay. Yeah, only for the uh, well, the elite. I would say we're all calling saints. True, that's true, but within the text itself. So if it's mirroring um, Exodus, Christ is delivering this to all of the people there, the new Israel. Very good, you're correct. He, he addressed it to the crowds. He didn't just address it to the apostles. He didn't say, I have a little Gnostic wisdom for you. No, it's to everybody. And the fathers of the church directed their commentaries and their homilies on it to the lay faithful. Augustine's commentary wasn't addressed to the presbyterate of Hippo. It was addressed to everyone. So you're right. If he's speaking to the Gentiles, he's speaking to everybody. Number two, it's a social and political manifesto. We should all lay down our arms and live in peace and pacifism. We should live as comrades. A little, some liberation theologians back there. No, it's not the case. Why? Because Christ's kingdom was not earthly. Speaking of a heavenly kingdom, he was not a political messiah. Jesus was not a Marxist, okay? He wasn't. He wasn't, he wasn't you know, revolution. Nope. Well, we have enough evidence of that. And then finally is Luther's interpretation, where Luther, Pinkers claims, read it in light of Romans. A sermon on the mount presents us with an impossible task to show us our sins and lead us to repentance. Basically, the sermon was like the old law. We can't do it, only Christ can. Well, as we'll see, while there may be seeds of truth in that, no. There's something there's something else here. Yes, he's giving it the new law, but he's giving us the gift of the Spirit. Two, which is the new law. So you don't just get the text, you get the new law itself, the spirit which helps you to live it out. And that's the key. So Pinker says the only answer is that Christ did mean it for everyone and for it to be followed. He preached it to the crowds. It's not a political manifesto. And... With the text comes the actual spirit. Because if not, if Luther's correct, then Jesus would be no different than the Pharisees, laying impossible burdens on us. And yeah, it is difficult, it's lofty. However, if we realize that it's impossible for men, but we've been given the Spirit, which reveals the true meaning of the Holy, the Sermon on the Mount, and gives us the power to live it out. So you can't forget the new law is the Holy Spirit. 
Then unlike in the old law, you couldn't live it out because you didn't have the Holy Spirit. But you're given the Spirit to be able to accomplish these things. So it's great. Hey, y'all. And this is, if you get into it a little bit more, was sort of what Augustine said. And you're like, hey, you're going to get the Spirit when you're baptized. Like the apostles, you'll be able to live this out. It's Augustine's way of doing things. That it is not impossible because Christ gives us the power and the Spirit. Now, here's what kind of hit me last year. And again, I still need to discuss this with some people who are better moral theologians than I am, but I've taught this. And I went back and I read what Pinkers had to say. Um, and, and like, yeah, it's, it's true. It makes sense. We we're given the gift of the Spirit. We should be able to live this out because we're adopted sons and daughters. But last year, as I was doing research for this, I wanted to learn a little bit more about it, and I went to Pope Benedict. I think it was in 2008 or 9 was giving a series of audiences on like the doctors of the church and the church fathers and he did five of them on Augustine and I, I gave you the one to read if y'all did read it because I didn't forget we do have a quiz today so that's how I'm going to try to end this early or a potential quiz and the last one he talks about something I never heard, really heard of before, the three conversions of St. Augustine. You have his first conversion to Christianity, and then I think there was the other one where he, another mid-conversion, but it's the third one. And I want to read what he says and make commentary on it because it's so important to this. But there was a last step to Augustine's journey. This came towards the end of his life. The third conversion that brought him every day of his life to ask God for pardon. Initially, he thought that once he was baptized in the life of communion with Christ and the sacraments in the Eucharistic celebration, he would attain the life proposed in the Sermon on the Mount. The perfection bestowed by baptism and reconfirmed in the Eucharist. Okay? So basically, Ratzinger is alluding to his commentary in the sermon, where he'll even sort of say, like, you know, the, the apostles, they could live this perfectly. You just live out your baptism, you respond to the Spirit. So this is in, at 37 years old, 38, however long it took him to write it. The new priest. But guess what? As time went on, Augustine never changed his mind in the sense of became a heretic. But he had 40 years of experience as a priest and a bishop. And let me just explain this to you Go back, like now, I've been a priest for 23 years. I wouldn't 
deny anything that I said in my first years of priesthood, but oh boy, would I frame it differently? Yeah, I would. Because of my experience. And I realized, yeah, they're still black and white, but boy, oh boy, I would nuance things differently. And so that's what happened to Augustine. So it's crucial. He wrote, this is what, what Pinkers doesn't notice. Note, he wrote it at the beginning of his priesthood. Trust me, after 10 years, 20 years, and I'd imagine 30 and 40 years, you go back and you think of some of the homilies and things you talked about when you were first a priest, you are going to look at them differently because you're idealistic. Everything is great. It fits in this little box. I know everything. So listen to what he says. Uh, this is Benedict. During the last part of his life, he understood that what he had concluded at the beginning about the Sermon on the Mount here, that is, now that we are Christians, we live this ideal permanently, was mistaken. He was wrong. And Benedict says, only Christ himself truly and completely accomplishes the Sermon on the Mount. And so this is what Will had mentioned the break. And so Luther says, too, only Jesus did. So the Sermon on the Mount is basically Jesus saying, this is who I am. And, and how, did, how did Augustine come to realize this? Because he messed up a lot. Because <laughs> he made mistakes. He saw he was continuously failing short of the ideal. And believe me, he worked with other people who did not. <laughs> he heard confessions who were striving for holiness and fell on their face, who were baptized. I mean, think of the, the whole docetist controversy. His experience with himself and with others made him realize, oh, wait a second, only Jesus can really do this. So what, what's left for me? And this is where Benedict continues. We'd always, we always need to be washed by Christ who washes our feet and be renewed by him. We need permanent conversion. Until the end, we need this humility that recognizes that we are sinners journeying along until the Lord gives us his hand definitively and introduces us into eternal life. It was in this final attitude of humility, live day after day, that Augustine died. We're on the way. We're going to fall. And it's only going to end when Jesus brings us into the next life. But when we fall, it doesn't mean we sit there and beat ourselves up. We don't say, I'll never achieve the ideal of perfection. But we receive the Lord's mercy, we let him cleanse us, and it keeps us humble and dependent upon him. It's okay, we're getting there, because this is the last part. And this is what I, I, I didn't know, because I'm not an Augustine scholar. Benedict says, towards the end of his life, in the revision. So this is, towards the end of his life, you can get a copy of it in the, in the library, and in fact, I, I put the PDF of the section of the sermon. He wrote this, call, this book called The Retractionis, where he went back over his whole entire corpus of works and homilies and said, ah, I changed my mind on this. I was wrong on that. Everything he did, including the Sermon on the Mount critiques. And so if you look at the book, he quotes it from here. He said, he critiqued his work 
and he wrote it this truly original book and i think he wrote the retractions in 426 427 about 30 35 years after he wrote the commentary he says i understood that only one is truly perfect and the words of the Sermon of the Mount are completely realized in only one, in Jesus Christ himself. The whole church instead, all of us, including the apostles, who we thought could achieve it perfectly, must pray every day. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. So this is what, this is what Pinkers doesn't talk about. And maybe he does it in another, another reading or another part, is that Augustine retracted some of what he said as he got older, as he had more experience, as he grew in humility and wasn't a cocky 37-year-old priest who became a bishop after three years of being a priest and thought he knew everything. And he lived in his life. Listen, y'all, yeah, Jesus is the only one who lives it perfectly. We're not, but it doesn't mean that we don't follow it. It doesn't mean he didn't say, I retract everything I said, and we should throw out the, the, the Sermon of the Mount. No, he says the perfection is only to the degree that we can be perfect in this life. But we are continuously in need of God's mercy. Continuously. We're saying it all the time. Father, forgive, forgive us our trespasses. It's not that we say it once. Up. Oh. Uh, you know, maybe it was his, his contact with like, oh, well, this person's baptized, but they fell. They need to be baptized again. No, we need confession. We need mercy. So how does this understanding, and I think it just blew my mind when I read this, change the approach we have to the Sermon of the Mount, or at least Augustine's commentary? Only Christ can perfectly fulfill it. Absolutely. But we are called to live it out. Yes, Kyle. So just so I'm understanding for retractio, uh, in like modern printings of the book, um, would they suffer or would they take out the old thing? I, I don't think, no, I don't think so. No, I think you'd leave it there. You would just go read the retractions. Uh, maybe, there may be footnotes there because he does. He actually got a footnote. He said, when I said this, this line, then he footnoted it. I mean, then he comments. He said there may be, I just don't know. It would be a lot of work for all this stuff. How many of y'all knew that he wrote the revisions at the end of his life? Yeah, so I'm not, some of y'all are smarter than I am, but too busy studying St. Thomas. So we are still called to live it out. But how is it different than the old law? Is Luther correct that Christ was the only one who lived it out and we can't? No. The difference is, yes, that we have the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit grants us forgiveness of sins. But the truth is we're going to fail. But unlike in the Old Testament, when you failed in the Old Testament and the old law pointed out sin, yes, you're going to fall in your following Jesus, in the sequela Christi, in the transformation. But here we have the spirit that leads us to repentance because of the new covenant, we have it. In the blood of Christ, he's won it. 
We have repentance. We have justification and sanctification. So every time we fall, we constantly go back to Jesus. We constantly are forgiven of our sins. And as Augustine said, we do that. We pray for mercy. We grow in humility. And for me, this is the genius. I don't know if I've read this anywhere else. Tell me if you think I'm right or wrong. So here's the genius. Jesus gives us the Sermon on the Mount, knowing full well that only he can live it out. We can receive the gift of the Spirit and, and, and respond and be holy and be good. And sometimes we're going to do it. We're going to love our enemies. But a lot of times we're going to fall. And when we fall, we become more humble. We become more dependent on Christ as we continue to fall on the journey. But we learn humility. Where does humility bring us? Where does humility bring us? True, but more specific. Let's see if we can guess it. Does. No, it, no, it brings us back to the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So right there at the very beginning is the, the poor in spirit. So every time you screw up and go back to the Lord, you are living that first beatitude. Every time. So it's genius. It's genius. So the success is built into the failure at the very start. It's like watching one of those movies and then you get to the end and you realize the you knew the bad guy from the very beginning if you only knew the way paid attention. So this is it. It's not something unrealistic because we have the spirit, we can find forgiveness, but Jesus writes at the very foundation what's the most important? Humility. And so in a certain sense, like, yeah, you're you're journeying, but you're gonna fall back to the start. You know? But it's never fully back to the start. The more we grow in humility, the more we grow in blessedness. The more we are thankful for the Lord's mercy, the more we can rejoice. I mean, how many times have y'all have like completely messed up and said, oh, man, I'm such an idiot. How could I do this? And you're still so much ashamed to go to confession. You go and the priest is like, yeah, whatever, three Hail Marys. And you just come out feeling so great. I mean, like, really, like, the truth is, you'll see that when you hear confessions, people come in and this, this tremendous weight after 10 years, 20 years, and they go out and their life is just different. You can feel it. That's the blessedness of receiving mercy. You're living the sermon, even when you screw up. The key is you got to go back for forgiveness. You can't just beat yourself up. That, that I think, is just so unbelievable. So there's happiness that comes with it. Nobody is miserable after they receive mercy. And so, yeah, what I thought was, isn't this kind of like spiritual childhood in a little way? There's one author who who talks about Therese's little way as learning the art of failure. So, hey, I'm following the Sermon on the Mount. I'm doing a great job. I'm loving my neighbor, um, not being lustful in my heart. Awesome. You receive merit. 
oh, you screw up and you don't live it out? You run for mercy and you grow in humility and you realize more of your poverty and your humiliation and you're more dependent on the Lord and you win too. So that's the thing, that the little way, uh, the way of spiritual childhood is just the gospel. It's just the gospel, put in ways of a little French young woman who's smarter than all of us. But, you know, that's the key. And so as you, as a priest, learn to receive mercy for all the stupid things you're going to do, but believing the Lord sees your goodwill and says, yeah, I know you're trying to do the right thing. We're going to show you mercy the more you're going to be able to give that to other people. And so what's at the heart of what's at the heart of of the sermon is mercy and the blessedness that comes from giving and receiving it. So a few concluding comments. As I said before, the Sermon on the Mount is the key scriptural passage for Catholic moral theology. And I do agree with Pinkers that we go to it if we're going to really renew and revise moral theology. It does appeal to the heart and the interior. The Ten Commandments are important. But as we're going to talk about more, they're like training wheels. Okay? Put the training wheels on your bike. Why do you have training wheels? So you can learn to achieve your own balance. But eventually the training wheels come off. Does it mean... But what's happened is the training wheels have imparted the balance into you. Now you can pop wheelies. Now you can do what you want to do. Will likes popping wheelies. No, I was, was going to add to that in the sense that, you know, you take the training wheels off. But, I mean, how did you learn to ride your bike, really? I mean, My dad. Exactly. Yeah. So that's, that's even more, I think, the most important aspect of that we have the Father, the Trinity, however, actually helps us to, to navigate. Yeah. And so, but if you're 30 years old and you still have training wheels on your bike, you're going to hate it. You're going to hate it. And that's what happens. I'm 30 years old and my moral life is following the commandments. No, you should have integrated this by now. And as you pray and you encounter Christ, it's time. You, you never abandon the Ten Commandments. I'm never saying that. But it becomes, if it is the expression of the natural law, it's written into your human nature. It's written into your natural desires. Here, though, is the perfection of it. But the perfection comes when you fall. And remember, Dad lets you fall. Because if he doesn't let you fall, you're never going to get back up. Let's keep riding. You're going to put a little helmet on now. We didn't have that back, back in the day. Dad doesn't push you off. He helps you. But you have to know it's truth. Look at the end of the sermon. Whoever hears it and puts it into practice. But even when you fall, you're living it out. How can you make it central? I think through your preaching and teaching. The examination of conscience according to it. Living it out yourselves. And as, as, as Will did, it does highlight, I think, the Trinitarian Commission. Uh, Trinitarian dimension of this. Christ fulfills it. The Spirit leads us to conversion. It's the new law. It gives, forgive, it gives forgiveness, repentance. But where is the Father? He is present in the sermon. Jesus gives us the Our Father, tells us to pray to the Father in secret. 
The father takes care of the birds and the, the lilies. Then in the end, it says that Christ's words expresses the will of his father in heaven. So it's there. It's all, where is the journey? If we're on the journey in son, we're all the homo viator. We're going somewhere. We're going to the father. Father Jacques Philippe says that the sermon leads to the father who wants happiness for his children, who desires to show merciful love. And so I think you could say that this becomes the basis of that filial morality of a God who knows you are going to mess up. Who is not there to criticize you or whatever, but who wants to show you mercy, who knows you're trying to ride the bike and is willing to work with you as you do. Does that make sense? Now, what's so great about this, if you understand this, is what we're going to argue, I'm going to argue, is essential to Paul's moral teaching. And so I really want to encourage you to read that section on the cursus pudorum, even though I don't think I put it as a a required reading. Um, It's not very, very long. About We're going to look at some of the key texts of Paul on Monday as to what the moral life is about. But I'm going to add a few things where, yeah, the, the gospel is a call to perfection, to love your neighbor, even though it gets on your nerves. And we are on a journey, but it's a lifelong journey. Be patient with ourselves, be patient with others, dialogue with Christ. But we're going somewhere to the end where we will be with the Father, where we'll be able to rejoice in heaven like his children. But we're going to get to that when we get to the eschatological dimension. Any questions or comments? Does this make sense? Does this blow your mind? Once again, Ratzinger, he does it. Right there. So I'd be curious. I need to talk to uh, some Dominican friends who studied in Freiburg, or one in particular, to see what he thinks of this. He'll probably call me a heretic, but uh, any other questions or comments? So let's uh, close the glory be, and then we'll roll. Glory be to the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.